Okay, I believe we're going to get started. If my, if you guys are ready. Yeah. Good mid morning, everybody. Um, my name is Jean Schultz Angel, and I'm the executive director of the Lombard Historical Society. And you are at Whose History Are You Getting? Exploring the neglected stories in your community or in your institution. With me is Isis Ferguson. She's from the Jane Addams Hull House Museum in Chicago. And Todd Palmer, who's with the National Public Housing Museum in Chicago. And I am based 20 miles west of Chicago as well, so we're all from that area. And thanks, guys, for coming. This is both of their first AASLH um, conference. So, yes. And I'm thrilled that I dragged them into it. <laughs> um, just to give you a little background on everybody, um, my organization is a small historical society 20 miles west of Chicago. Um, my background is um, in history and anthropology. I also worked as an archaeologist for a time. I did, um, my master's thesis was on the anti-slavery movement in northern Illinois. Um, and um, I'm a seminar for historical administration grad, class of uh, 2012, 2010. Yay, Dina. And I'm also an Illinois Humanities Council Road Scholar Speakers Bureau for the Underground Railroad. Um, Todd, who is over here, came to the museum field in 1994 after earning his master's in architecture, doing research and exhibit development at Ralph Applebaum Associates. In 2006, he co-founded the interdisciplinary experience design firm, Program Collective. With the collective and as a consultant, Todd's career has focused on making contemporary issues like sustainability, gentrification, and diversity accessible in multimedia exhibitions. He's also worked to illuminate the stories of charged places, such as President Jane Addams' plantation at Mount Pelier, done for the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and the Lorraine Motel where Martin Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, which is a site of the National Civil Rights Museum, where he was the curatorial director for the permanent exhibit that opened in 2002. From 2011 to 2012, Todd collaborated with Ralph Applebaum Associates at, as a content consultant with the Smithsonian Institution's Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington. In March of this year, Todd was appointed as the founding curator of creativity and public engagement at the National Public Housing Museum in Chicago. So welcome, Todd. Isis Ferguson is a cultural worker in Chicago. She is the program coordinator at the Jane Addams Hull House Museum at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She translates her academic background in gender and culture studies, masters, and black studies and women's studies, bachelors, into curation work at the museum. In her role as program coordinator, she develops imaginative and dynamic programming that supports progressive movement building and connects communities through art and justice-themed engagements. She brings over a decade of experience working with urban youth of color initiatives to her work at the museum. Her cultural and community work outside Hull House is devoted to the feminist and artistic and to feminist and artistic endeavors. Most dear to her are the projects Leftist Lounge Chicago, Venus Collective, and Ella's Daughters. So let's give these people a welcome. Yay. Thank you. And first we are going to hear from Todd. 
thank you. All right, I'm going to talk about a museum that's in development, uh, we're a museum of the streets, we like to say. We have a staff of five, and we do programming in Chicago. And actually, we're doing a first program in New York coming up in October with the Ford Foundation. But we're working to get a site, um, and a lot of the story is about that site and how that particular site relates to the museum. I think my colleagues will be talking about museums telling certain stories and discovering stories that might be neglected or, or not said. But one of the challenges of our institution is, is actually, it doesn't exist. It's a, it's a story not of on, only of one city of Chicago, but a story of our nation that just doesn't get told. Um, and, and one of the questions that, that we wind up asking is, or when I say, like on a plane, as coming here, and someone asks what I do, and I say, well, I work for museums, and they're like, oh, which museum? And I say, the National Public Housing Museum. You know, there's the, the look across the faces, National Public Housing Museum. Why, why a museum about that? Which is another way of saying, like, why, why a museum? So the, one of the things that we have to address is precisely that question. Um, in Chicago, public housing is rather notorious, um, and it's been, it's apparently a, a scholar in Minnesota uh, has has looked at the literature of public housing scholarship and the preponderance of that literature looks at Chicago, whether you're a professor in Los Angeles or New York, you're, you're looking at Chicago. And he kind of asked why is that. It's not typical at all of public housing. Um, you could look at the kind of success story of New York, or you could look at kind of low-rise public housing that exists in places like Houston or, or Los Angeles, and, and Chicago's completely anomalous. So it's kind of like the, the train wreck of public housing and his theory is like, you know, there's a train wreck or a car wreck, you, you just have to look. Um, but those are the academics that are looking, you know, the, the everyday people, um, the press, it's not, it's not a story that we like to talk about. There's stories we don't wish to repeat. And some of the words, this is actually an artistic installation that was done in Cabrini Green before it was torn down. Um, Chicago has been on the forefront of the what is called in Chicago the transformation, um, plan for transformation, which is the way Hope Six, if you get into the policy, which was a Clinton era policy that really said the public housing as it was created in the kind of post-war era, which actually has its origins in the um, Great Depression and the Public Works Administration and FDR's New Deal, that is a mistake and we really need to integrate these communities and very well intentioned but there's a lot of controversy and conflict around that so public housing as one thinks of it if you know I grew up in Chicago I mean I didn't grow up in Chicago I grew up in Denver but growing up visiting my grandparents in Chicago driving down the Dan Ryan Expressway you see these towers like this that they're no longer there so um, some of the reasons public housing was torn down were some of the reasons why people wonder why we want to tell these stories. You know, the neglect, it was an embarrassment to the city. Um, the perception that one has driving by or not living there is that these are these enormous anonymous places of all these countless windows and the stories of crime. It was something, you know, that one might be in denial about. So this is actually the building we're trying to preserve, the image on the slide. Um, and 
the condition one finds it in seems to speak of what we think of public housing, these words that I mentioned before. Um, but as these buildings are torn down, and this is another artistic image um, from a Chicago photographer, um, you begin to get another sense, and you can't really read these, but um, there's a book called uh, When Public Housing Was Paradise, and people living in public housing say things like, you know, um, we had 18,000 applicants for 1,600 units. So there's this great demand. And they were proud of living in a place like Ida B. Wells, which is public housing development. Um, when you look at public housing more like a community, then you're doing something. So there's this other way of looking at it from the inside out that's where the impetus of the museum kind of comes in, so that we take these perceptions of neglect or embarrassment and transform them into stories that ought to be told. Um, how to locate value and, and acceptance and humanity in people from the inside out, their experiences. Um, so the notion that we could take this site, which is on the west side of Chicago, um, and turn it into something that's modeled somewhat on the Tenement Museum, which you might be familiar with in New York, but having completely different challenges because there's a kind of nostalgia we might have about tenements as a kind of housing for the poor that no longer exists and rich people live there and pay you know, a million dollars. Um, public housing doesn't quite have that cachet yet, so it's a, it's, a, it's a different story. So why a museum? It's a place to tell the story. Um, and then we arrive, oh, so the conceit of this is I'm taking the four words in our name and kind of asking questions about museum, public, housing, and national. So the question of housing and who's housing um, this is our building. It's, um, it's actually adjacent to a place in Chicago called Little Italy, and it was always Little Italy, even before there was public housing. Although it's a bit of a misnomer because the people living in Little Italy are, you know, if you look at the census records of our building, they're Czech and they're Mexican and they're Polish and they're Jewish and they're German and they're everything. There's even 22 African-American families living in Little Italy at the time. And so when Franklin Roosevelt in 1930s um, Un, uh, unveils these sets of demonstration projects across the country in places like Louisville and Chicago and all over, um, even Hawaii. Uh, it's a very optimistic kind of place and the housing. And so one of the questions is the stigma and the denial and, and, and feelings that when I say, oh, it's a public housing museum, you know, certain people are going to flash into your mind. And, and why is that? That African-American people, it's just to be plain. Um, so th when it opens, this is a, you know, some floor plans of our building and a family that we've been able to interview as part of our oral history um, collection project. These are the, um, the Madors, or at the time the Turitz, Turovitz family. They're a Jewish family um, from Russia, and they've been living um, in Little Italy in, in what was called slum conditions at the time. And they're very happy to move into um, our building because... I'm actually skipping ahead. Um, they're a kosher family, and there's a, you know, the kitchen's never been cooked in. So you can imagine in the 1930s, in the midst of the Depression, a new building like this with a fresh kitchen. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great place. Um, who's housing in the 50s? We, we talked to a different family, the Ritzies. It's still Little Italy. Now um, you can sort of see, actually, from the left of the photo, what still exists are these sort of storefronts and tenement buildings, which now in Chicago do sell for, you know, millions of dollars. Um, and then Jane Addams' homes on the right. 
the Ritzies have a very different kind of narrative as we talk to them. While their mother was very happy to move in public housing, her, her husband committed suicide. She was a widow. There was not many job opportunities for her. Her kids were growing up with kids who were beginning to live with the other America of the post-war era, who had Twinkies on the counter and were driving out to the lawn. And, and so if you start looking at the policies and, and public housing and how it situates into our urban environment, the sense of poverty and as being an embarrassment that, that the that society really was about, you know, consumption and having your own house. So this it was the beginning of the end of public housing, even though you couldn't see it. But in the narratives from the inside out, we see that their stories don't match up with a Jewish family story, even though, you know, the building was still mostly um, people of European descent. It wasn't any, nothing had changed, but society had changed. So that when we get to the last set of stories um, of the Hatch family, who's living there from the late 60s until the early 70s. It's a very different, you know, they actually have now a positive perception. So the Italians and the Jews and everyone have moved out by now. The building is 99% African-American. And why is that? Well, African-Americans during this expansion and consumption era can't move to the suburbs. There are, especially in a place like Chicago, there's, you know, covenants and restrictive zoning. And so public housing represents this wonderful opportunity for advancement that had been denied. Actually, when Jane Addams was built, there were the 22 families that could live there, but the way, the only way they could get legislation for public housing through the government was basically to say, we're not going to promote integration. And so we, you know, if you build public housing, only people of the color and ethnicity that are living in that area can live there. So it was a way of keeping the kind of boundedness of our society fixed. Whoops. That's how fast I need to be going. So anyway, they have a different story, right? Uh, so we tell a story. It's every story. It's an American story. It's not a black story. And part of the story is how did it become that? Um, so I think the other thing we do is reflect upon the status of public. I think When I say National Public Housing Museum, people think national government. Actually, national becomes problematic because it sounds like Smithsonian or um, – and public, we think government and other, and and so the you know this notion of failure, to in, to whom does it belong? And I think it's very convenient, and you know, not to get into sort of the polemics of politics, but I, we we tend to make the public something else that someone else you know it's in Washington. And I think one of the things we're playing with is the idea that the public actually does it's the civic realm. It belongs to the all of us, and, and how can we reinvigorate that notion that the public is this broader sphere? So part of the inside-out storytelling also does deal with the policy and thinking that policy does reside in human hands. This is a photo I like. It's, it's sort of misleading. It's from the National Archives in their hands of, I guess, probably the person putting these floor plans on the scanner. But it's a great reminder that the person that drew that or the person that wrote that policy had human hands and they're not any more other than any of us here. So this way of uh, – in the same way that we stigmatize the residents, I think we stigmatize the public and, and the museum is about taking that apart. Um, so the last few set of slides just have to do with this question of being a national museum but a local museum at the same time. And there's a bit of audacity that I guess is in the – you know, Chicago's an audacious place, so a museum that doesn't have a facility is a national museum. And how are we 
you know, I've only worked there since March, so I don't. But but it's one of the challenges that we face, um, and and it's interesting that you know, I mean, we have this building in the lower left corner, which is in the west side, and and we have meetings on our board. Um, sit three public housing residents. Actually, it's the public housing residents that are the reason that we exist. Um, uh, Devera Beverly, who's now Commissioner Beverly, um, is a LAC president in, a, in Chicago, as in many cities, the residents have their own uh, leadership groups that work in concert with the policymakers. So when Chicago was going through this plan for transformation, um, Commissioner Beverly found a way to negotiate that they didn't tear this building down. And so what we've been doing as a museum, she she was able to preserve it and then got the sort of civic and philanthropic um, support to create a nonprofit, which is now the National Public Housing Museum. But one of the challenges is we're on the west side, and people in the north side say, which says Mayfield, let's see, Curtis Mayfield was born in Cabrini-Green on the north side. So they, they, they have nothing to do with the west side. I mean, it's like Russia and, you know, China. There's just, it's different places. And then, on the, and then on, the, on the south side, we have the same thing. So there's already, like, to be a national museum in Chicago when the west side doesn't feel represented in the north and the south. Um, so one thing, actually, by going national is, like, embracing just – and then the – examples of places, to, you know, high-rise public housing versus our building, which is a three-story building, versus Lupe Fiasco is a rapper that grew up in this building on the west side, which is more like a Section 8. Um, Kenny Rogers in Houston, this is where he grew up. So we're actually, the, the look and the place and the and public housing by just, it, it's diverse. It doesn't look like what you expect. It still exists, whether you're talking about Section 8 or you're talking about historic buildings like this one in Houston. Um, so just flashing through some images of an exhibit that we did at the Cultural Center in our Museum of the Streets phase where we, where we looked at stories from the inside out of musicians, famous people, and not famous people. So on the left we have image of a march. Well, actually these kids are jumping rope at Cabrini Green, but in the inset there's a marching band that came out of um, Cabrini Green. And then on the right the story of Frankie Valley, who grew up in public housing in New Jersey and and just the contrast between the towers of Cabrini Green and the kind of low-rise townhomes in New Jersey and the, and the success story of a Frankie Valley who actually started in a gang and the complicated stories of Cabrini Green where these kids, you know, these music programs don't exist anymore and actually Cabrini Green doesn't exist anymore either. So um, I'll just flash through a few of these images of different um, personalities that, that are part of the story and by nationalizing and even making it more international it helps to humanize I think and, and, and then the next step I think is then how do we locate these stories in these places that are not in Chicago so Elvis in Memphis or um, the Supremes in Detroit or Alex Alakakis who's from Los Angeles um, I know we're, I'm probably going over time so these are stories that need to be told Leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, next we're going to hear from Isis. Yes. Um, as she sets up. Yeah. Um, Todd, I did have one question for oh, you. Right. Um, when does the public housing museum
phase, capital campaign phase, and we are actually in the next two months wrapping up the negotiations with the city. So we're hopeful. Two months, really, only? <laughs> well, that has been going on for years, right? So, um, so we're hoping to make an announcement about that, but it'll, next year, probably a year from now, next year. Um, the very neighborhoods that Todd is talking about um, are also the neighborhoods that I speak of um, in my presentation because we're both housed on the UIC campus, but the neighborhood where Hull House Museum existed in Chicago um, is where UIC is now and where the housing project that Todd is talking about. So there's lots of similarities between our story. Um, so good morning. Uh, my name is Isis Ferguson. I am the program coordinator at the Jane Addams Hall House Museum. I'm also new, like Todd. I've been there about um, a year and a half. Um, and I subtitled my talk, which I don't have on here, but it's just in my notes, um, Moving Horizontally, Not Vertically. It's a metaphor for how Hall House practices um, institutional shared authority, both in the multiplicity of voices, but also in the manner in which community is engaged. So moving horizontally and not vertically is also how Hull House tries to build our relationships, foster dialogue, and address pressing social issues. Moving horizontally and not vertically also describes the model of solidarity and engagement that guided the relationships at the Hull House settlement between the newly arrived and often impoverished immigrant communities and the wealthy and well-educated white citizens who were residents and who lived and worked at the Hull House from the late 1800s into the mid-19th century. So I have a few images of this time period. Um, I think it's useful for the people in the room because I'm not sure how much you know about Jane Addams or about the Hull House to just give you a really condensed history of the settlement and then um, jump into the museum today. So Jane Addams was a pioneer social reformer, an internationalist, a feminist, and a peace activist. She's best known as being America's first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize and for co-founding the Hull House settlement in 1889. So settlement houses were a kind of early community center that addressed the changing urban conditions after the Industrial Revolution and worked to meet the needs of diverse populations, especially immigrants. Educated white, middle-class, wealthy men and women settled in the working-class neighborhoods and offered an enormous range of classes and programs. Adams and the residents, or and this is an image um, of the neighborhood that Todd is talking about. It's one of the, it predates census, and this was um, done by um, one of the residents in the Hull House settlement, and this um, captures every single living, or every single structure in the neighborhood and indicates, like, were there bathhouses? Um, did they have access to clean water? How many people lived in there? What were their wages? So this is just kind of an example of some of the work that they did. So Adams and the residents, or reformers as we called them, worked daily to create conditions for peace in Chicago's most diverse immigrant neighborhood from 1889 until her death in 1935. Adams and the residents of Hall House advocated for public health, fair labor practices, full citizenship rights for immigrants, public education, recreational and public space, public arts, women's rights, food security, and free speech. Uh, they very much did it all. So this is, um, these are really quick flashes of some of the neighborhood people that would come for the classes. Um, young people came, adults came, and we had a resident poet a few years ago and he um, wrote a poem about Jane Addams um, on the dedication when we got her Nobel Peace Prize in the museum. So I'm just going to play 
a clip of this. I hope you can hear it. Oh, we, could, we didn't know you were going to have sound. We could have picked it's okay. that up. It's all right. <laughs> Jane Addams' birthright wrote her among the wealthy. Her and Ellen Gates Starr and Florence Kelly and a bunch of their homegirls, white women who flipped, deemed crazy and prescribed bed rest, who moved into each other outside of marriage and single-family homes, who questioned the nature of domesticity. The homemaker is maker of culture, and the culture is broad like the people are broad-shouldered, hauling hours and jobs that should be valued like the jobs of bosses, and the fate of bosses and the people are the same because we live in the same house where we haul and haul our bodies into public space where all bodies should be clothed and fed and coddled and caressed freely by the hands of doctors and cooks, lovers and communists, American these hands, immigrant and chained, dirty and clean-fingernailed, raw and stubborn, the home and public space blurred or extended like the good and goods a citizen should be offered. Okay. I thought that was sort of a, well, it is a, po a much more poetic description of the Hull House than I could give. So the Hull House became a laboratory of social change growing into a 13 building complex at its height serving more than 9,000 immigrants per week. Hull House was a place where the great visionaries of the day came to think and work. It was a lively place where immigrants, social reformers, writers and others could imagine and convene oftentimes very contentiously working through the most difficult issues of today. So today, the Jane Addams Hall House Museum is a national historic landmark. It became a museum only, 11, only a few years after 11 of the 13 original Hall House buildings were demolished. So now we exist in two different structures, the actual house and then what we call the residence dining hall, which is where everyone ate dinner or shared meals every day. Um, the buildings were demolished in 1936 um, to make way for the University of Chicago, which was built on that land. So we're actually on their land now. University of Illinois, thank you, <laughs> at Chicago. Um, the Jane Addams Hall House Museum is fortunate to have inherited a legacy of research, action, and social engagement from the Hall House settlement that is really distinctive for a historic house site. We're uniquely suited to engage in contemporary issues of social justice in courageous and fearless ways that feature multiple interpretations. Doing this does not stretch us or take us outside of our mission. It, in fact, is our mission. The issues that Adams cared about and devoted her life to are largely the very same issues that we're grappling with in national and cultural political discourses today. And I listed them before. Poverty, immigration, labor conditions, food security, public health, democracy, and peace. So pushing past convention, engaging in a self-reflective approach that is honest about its missteps, and convening, and this is really important to us, convening disparate and marginalized communities as legitimate knowledge makers drives Hull House to ask questions about social justice and compels us to take risks in our content, in our process, and in our partnerships. Um, and this is something I'm sure that Todd will be grappling with once they, they have a space, but perhaps the most challenging dimension for a museum with activist beginnings is demonstrating the relevancy, not preaching to the NPR listeners, the crowd that thinks they already all, already know everything, but um, or the rabble rousers or the vocal dissenters in your community, but really connecting with the unengaged, the disinterested or the oppositional publics who may not even know you exist, or sometimes if they know you exist, uh, they don't like the story that you're telling or they don't like the way that you're preserving it. So how did Hull House begin activating our site as a place that evokes history through multiple interpretation and one that stimulates critical questions for social justice? For many years, 
Hall House actually functioned as a research-oriented museum. It was run by scholars who were passionate about women's history and worked to uncover and document the history of the site. These women worked to professionalize the museum by cataloging our artifacts, growing our collection, and contributing immensely to the body, to the body of research. But eight years ago, the museum went under a major transformation. Um, we hired a new director, our last director, Lisa Young Lee, and she brought a new vision for the museum that would build upon the strong foundation of the museum's previous scholarly work, the university affiliation, but would throw open the doors to a larger, more diverse public than ever before. Her framework sought to enliven our site, a place that is committed to telling a particular history of Jane Addams and progressive era, era reformers, but through the intersection, this time, of contemporary art, scholarship, and meaningful community collaboration. And we do all this, and it's a praxis that I, I really feel like she developed um, that honors the tradition of Hull House that links all forms of activism. So these, they're not these siloed issues that we work on labor, we work on food justice, we work on women's rights. So let me flip back to some pictures for you. Um, and something that I kind of wanted to address about all of the sites that we work in is that we all have skeletons in our closet. Um, and if we were devoted to a strictly celebratory interpretation, then we would perpetuate the closeting of the elements of our historical figures that make them very real people, that make them challenging and multidimensional. So our museum continues to seriously investigate the issues of race and class at Hull House. Because while the dominant narrative about Adams is that she worked for racial equality and civil rights for all, she's been criticized for her relationship with African-American communities. And we know that the solidarity, not charity model, embraced by the residents at Hull House didn't mean that the reformer and the immigrant neighborhood relationship wasn't fraught with cultural misunderstanding or blindness on the part of the reformers to fully recognize their privilege. So at the Hall House Museum today, we take up the mantra, and this is actually on the cover of our brochure, never again will a single story be told as though it's our only one. A this is a quotation from the art critic and writer John Berger that infuses much of the work that we do. Not only do we explore the life of Jane Addams, but we tell the stories of the many reformers, the immigrants, the immigrants, the neighbors who lived there, worked there, and played at Hull House. So with my remaining time, I want to tell you about a specific exhibit that we had in 2012. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, this is an example of how Hull, the Hull House historic site capitalizes on our people power. It's how we situate ourselves within movement building and exist beyond the walls of our house to complicate the single narrative of our historic institution. So a project that we exhibit in the summer of 2012 speaks to this, the disrupt, disruptive power of image and self-naming to expand narrative. So for a month in July of 2012, we exhibited I Define Myself, Undocumented and Unafraid. And you can see around the house, these are the portraits, which is a collection of 15 large-scale portraits of undocumented individuals. The young people who courageously participated, lending both their image and their name, they all gave their first and their last name, are involved in the Coming Out of the Shadows campaign. It's a national campaign that began by the very activists in this project in 2010 with the purpose, this is their stated purpose, of creating a public space where undocumented youth and parents can share their frustrations, struggles, hopes, views, 
hopes and views complicating the narratives of who is undocumented, claiming a public and political claiming a public and political space to say we are undocumented, unafraid, and unapologetic, and that we will be the ones who define ourselves. So um, this is an image taken from the Inside Out Project. I Define Myself is connected to a global participatory art project called Inside Out, which transforms messages of personal identity into works of public art. So this is an example. Um, this is a, an example of something in Tel Aviv, I believe. Um, started by the project was started by the French street artist, JR, and Inside Out allows people worldwide to get their picture taken and paste it publicly to support an idea and share their experience. As of December of 2012, there were over 120,000 people from more than 108 countries that had participated. So the Hull House exhibit and the public program of I Define Myself is a contemporary intervention in the museum that connects our modern institution to the Hull House Settlement's long legacy of working with Chicago's immigrant community, 24 ethnic groups who put down roots in Chicago at the turn of the 20th century in the near west side that we still call home. And you can think back to that slide I had of all the little colorful houses, um, that's the neighborhood. So the form that the project took, this is an example of like the flyer we had, um, we worked with a community artist who went through all the like different kind of ways you, you can do wheat paste on a historic site because that doesn't so much work sometimes <laughs> and it might uh, look a little permanent. So we had to do all these trial and error. So these are just some images capturing um, the day that we did the unveiling. Um, the form the project took, occupying public space, exhibited and it was exhibited in a way to retain the elements of street style art, displaying the portraits alongside the historic house's porch and walkway. Visible on one of the university's very public facing streets or entryways required a bit, required a bit of internal university negotiation. So at the launch of the installation, um, the opening program very much reframed the conversation away from the legality of the identity of the people in the portraits and instead called into question the legitimacy of particular laws. It complicated the migration, complicated migration stories and called into question viewers own history with place, mobility and home. Uh, there was pushback or there is pushback whenever marginalized communities assert our power. When we name ourselves, reject labels and tropes of pathology or criminality there are, that are leveled upon us, confronting the tensions of conflicting stories, multiple stories, and acknowledging a rupture in the dominant narrative may be very personally or institutionally uncomfortable, but it's nothing near the distress felt by those living under the inhumane and unjust conditions of poverty, racism, nationalism, and, and xenophobia. So if you're thinking about your institution and you're thinking about incorporating these different narratives, it's simply the uncomfortability I really feel like is simply indicative of a power shift and nothing more. Um, and then this is uh, after the exhibit left our space, some things changed. So I wanted to mention that I define myself undocumented and unafraid, eventually traveled to other parts of the university after we deinstalled it. Um, its ephemeral trace could be viewed all over campus for the rest of the school year, hung in a variety of ways at the six centers for cultural understanding and social change. Um, when it, this is uh, outside of the Latino Cultural Center. Uh, when it was installed outside of the Gender and Sexuality Center in the spring of 2013, it was vandalized. Pictures, and this is um, capturing that, pictures were tor torn down, the label explaining the project was defaced, and the campus 
uh, responded with a program of solidarity, a day of speeches, um, some action steps uh, that were drafted by undocumented students. So this is just capturing, this is a statement from the chancellor. Um, so I began with a phrase, horizontally, not vertically, to talk about the project I define myself, and more specifically to talk about the ways in which the, our museum engages community, working in conjunction with multiple publics who don't always get recognized for their worth or as content experts and knowledge generators, as people who can teach us just as much as the institution can teach the public. The undocumented students participating in this project had goals as organizers, and they, in fact, approached the, um, the museum. We did not approach them, but we do work with them in other capacities. They were not subjects in a larger Hull House narrative. They were the authors of their own stories. We stood as an institution in solidarity with them and with the legacy of immigrant rights, immigrant rights work at our site to draw upon. So I want to end um, with another little clip that we have also on our website, um, the it's um, about the stance of solidarity, and um, it's something that the educator, writer, and activist Bill Ayers describes as the work of Jane Addams, and so I'm just going to leave um, with these words of inspiration for expanding not just your site's narrative, but perhaps the staffing and how your staff looks at your site, your engagement strategies, your collections, your partnerships, and your entire approach. So hopefully you can hear this. Solidarity asks us to recognize that the people with the problems will also be the people with the solutions. That there is no outside expert who knows it all. No Lady Bountiful waiting in the wings who can provide the answers. No foundation or government grant that can replace the wisdom on the ground. There are perhaps lessons here for us today. Lessons about raising our voices in indignation and protest in response to injustice and human suffering. Lessons about acting to create a more peaceful, more balanced, and just social order. If we choose to stir ourselves to act against the hard edges of injustice, we might, each and every one of us, become the men and women sweating out Jane Addams' hopes here and now. The hard-bitten street... Thanks. And now we'll be hearing from me. <laughs> right. And um, on a completely different century, this is Finding Old Charlie, Discovering the Black History in a White Abolitionist House. Um, unlike, um, or like, these other voices, we had a voice that wasn't identified in one of our small museums. Now, this is something that we, we um, we were surprised at, and it's, it sort of shocked us that we were doing it wrong all those years, and I'll tell you why. This is a picture of the Sheldon Peck Homestead. It's 20 miles outside of Chicago. Um, it's a small historical society. We have two historic house museums. This is one of them. And it is, um, it is on the National Park Service Underground Railroad Network to Freedom, and that's what sort of helped our discovery that I'll, I'll tell you about. Now, what you need to know, Lombard is um, a DuPage County, um, very Republican, very um, conservative area. But in the recent census of 2010, it was for the first time determined that it was a diverse community. 
um, coming to a surprise for a lot of people, I think, in Lombard. So we have, we are now officially diverse according to the federal census. And so on that impetus, I went, oh, let's look at this and see what we're, stories we're not telling. Um, so the Peck Homestead, like I said, um, it was actually built in 1837 to 1839, and we had for many, many years a traditional interpretation. There is Sheldon Peck with his shillelagh and his wife Harriet right outside the home. And the focus in the traditional interpretation of the history, and when I say traditional, I mean since it became a museum, the family owned it from 1837 until, get this, 1996. One family the whole time. It's pretty remarkable. And then they, uh, Alan Mertz, the great-grandson of Sheldon Peck, donated the house to the Lombard Historical Society. And at that point, we restored it back to what Sheldon Peck would have known, and um, it's been a museum officially since 1999, open as a museum. And so that interpretation or the, the history, because we knew about the history throughout the community before it became a museum, but it was a historic house and not a museum. And the family always said, um, well, you know, Sheldon Peck's a famous artist, nationally known folk art painter. Uh, he comes up on Antiques Roadshow from time to time. We have no original Sheldon Peck paintings because we can't afford them. His highest one has gone for over $800,000. They're at the Art Institute at the Whitney Museum in New York and all those wonderful places that have bet better security than the Sheldon Peck Homestead. We're actually, if somebody donated one to us, we wouldn't know what to do. So um, the, he's, he's a folk art painter, but that was sort of the singular focus of his history and his, um, they claimed he was a community, uh, an important person in, in the community as well and a folk art painter, which we're coming to find he was actually quite ostracized in the community because of his radical beliefs. And then we sort of, and then the family would say, well, and you know, the house is a stop on the Underground Railroad, casually, you know, oh, the house is a stop on the Underground Railroad. And we took a step back um, in the last uh, 10 or 13 years or so, and we went from this traditional interpretation of focusing on this portrait painter who also happened to be anti-slavery to what are the other stories here? All of these things can't be independent. They must be linked together. What's going on? So um, although he was known for being anti-slavery locally, we didn't actually link the abolitionist with the painter with the whole story and beyond. So um, why was the black history at the house easy to dismiss? And when I look back on it, you know, this was a volunteer, volunteer historians, people with their heart and soul in the, in the organization, but not people of color. It was easy to dismiss because we didn't invite in the stakeholders for that history, um, and we still st strive to do that. But it's also easy to dismiss for very practical reasons. That's not the easiest history to find and to um, discover and to research. And if you don't have a background in where to look or um, which direction to go, you could spend hours thinking you're wasting your time looking for these people who also came through, these freedom seekers. So there was limited amounts of information that were at our fingertips. And so it was dismissed because it was deemed too difficult, too difficult to find those voices. 
We did have Frank Peck, who's the grandson of Sheldon Peck, we did, or I'm sorry, the son of Sheldon Peck. We did have his memoir, and in his memoir, he, he wrote of, of uh, Old Charlie. Um, and then he talked about the Underground Railroad. And he would write things sort of vaguely, but then there was little clues here and there. Um, and in this, this phrase, he wondered why he was black and I was white, and I asked him if his skin rubbed off, would he be white too? Which is a shocking statement when we say it out loud today, but in his time growing up in DuPage County in the 1850s, that is not a shocking statement. Um, there were not very many people of color there, um, and on their farm, the, his first encounter of a person of color would have been a freedom seeker for sure. So um, he also goes on to write that old Charlie had taught him a plantation song and they sang together. So that gives clues to old Charlie and who he is and where he was going. And we've looked in many, many slave spiritual books for these words and we cannot locate them. This is primary source information at our site that you know, we want to share because we can't find this in other places. So this is meat and potato stuff here, but this is all we talked about in terms of old Charlie. And we were motivated um, by applying to the National Underground Railroad Network to Freedom, which is a verifiable listing of Underground Railroad sites all over the country. We were motivated in that application because it wasn't good enough for them for us to just give that information about the memoir and be done. They said, you need to find old Charlie. You need to look around and this story needs to be expanded. And we all said, oh, 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 how are we gonna do this? And then we started. We started contacting people in the state. We started going to other historical societies that had claimed to have links and affiliations with the Underground Railroad. And we started to look at Sheldon Peck, where he was traveling around the state who is he painting? And we're finding that many of the people he is painting are other anti-slavery advocates and possible stops on the Underground Railroad. So we're starting to link all this together and then we made a surprising discovery. And it was right under our nose for many, many years. Um, there, there was some history we found in Western Illinois um, and it, Owen Mulder wrote a book called um, The Underground Railroad in Western Illinois. And in his book, he highlights Charlie. And it is remarkably similar to the Charlie that came through the Peck House. Not only was he a freedom seeker himself, but he also a conductor, bringing people across Illinois on the Underground Railroad. And for those of you, I, I know all you know this, but it's not underground and it's not a railroad, right? Are we beyond, okay, we're beyond that, good. <laughs> um, a network of people in places helping to get people to Canada. Um, so so, so the, the, uh, the Charlie we were finding in Western Illinois fit the time period, the age of the man, his traits, his um, musical ability, everything fit into place. And where Charlie was, Peck seemed to be as well. And so we started seeing all this. And then we got a call from Sheldon Peck's, a distant relative who still lives um, in the area. And he said, you know, I have a painting. And I think it might be Charlie. And we went, what? <laughs> 
how have you been keeping this from us? And um, he met with us and he said, this painting was painted by Susan Peck. And Susan is actually to the left here in the, um, of the three daughters of Peck. And he said, and it's been in the family. We know Susan did it. And the family believes in, in terms of oral history in the family that this was old Charlie. And um, so we said, could we please have this dated and, you know, the paint analyzed? And we did so. And the paint dates from the time of Sheldon Peck. So um, we, we sort of verified it through science that, yes, this is an actual painting. And this might be one of the only paintings that we know of, um, certainly that we know of, but maybe one of the only, that a freedom seeker is the center subject of a portrait. Now, obviously, this is a painting of a juvenile. She was a young girl when she did this. Um, but it, it is, a, it is a, a gentleman who has got tattered clothes on, playing a guitar, um, clearly um, African-American features, and um, Susan standing behind singing. Now, one of the parts in the memoir was talking about how they sung plantation songs and they, they were there together. It's important to know that Sheldon Peck, the tagline for the house is modest house, radical history, because he was not only anti-slavery, he was a radical abolitionist. He had people of color speaking at his house. He believed in racial equality. He wanted immediate emancipation. He was absolutely radical in his beliefs for that time period and therefore not at all welcomed by the people in his community, um, which is funny when some people say he was a community leader. He was actually on the outskirts, and he remained there. Um, and so his personality and all the evidence we know of Sheldon Peck, the artist, definitely puts him in a place where he's inviting freedom seekers to his table. He's not necessarily um, you know, sheltering them unless they need to be sheltered, but they're there with the family. You know, and this painting is indicative of that. And this is actually now on display at our museum. So we were, we were sort of prompted to make those connections between old Charlie Peck, that's an example of Peck's paintings there, the folk art, um, and, and the rest of what else is going on in terms of the anti-slavery movement, the abolitionist movement, the Underground Railroad in Illinois. And it was shocking to us to discover that you know, we had been sort of accidental racists almost because we didn't include those voices to begin with. And we didn't realize it because we had no people in the community who were stakeholders in this museum, people of color, who were saying, you're not telling the whole story when you focus on the white abolitionists. You need to expand and broaden your view. And it was, it, we were prompted by the National Park Service, and I'll be um, grateful to them for that application. So then we discovered we were able to broaden the history. We knew Peck's Underground Railroad activity. We knew old Charlie's known travels based on the historic record we found. And then Peck, where Peck's artwork was, um, where, where else he's painting and his other known travels. And we're sort of, we're, obviously this is not a route. Please don't mistake it for a route. It is just points on a map um, where this activity is happening in the historical record. So we sort of looked back at it and we said, you know, this is a much bigger story than we're giving it credit for in our small community. And so we started to reframe our site with this broadened perspective. Um, we're a black history site, but what does that mean? Isn't every site a black history site? You know, we started to think about this. Peck is a focus no longer made sense. 
you can't talk about the story without talking about old Charlie, without talking about the other people he's painting, and without old Charlie being front and center of that narrative. So the, fo the shift in the focus, ha uh, uh, the shift in the focus has been um, um, sort of abrupt and abrupt for some of my board members and the community stakeholders as well. Um, some people very recently have told me they think we should stop focusing on the Underground Railroad and start focusing again on his art. And so that happens, and it happens all the time. So there is pushback, and we'll talk a little bit about that pushback soon. But where we're headed in Lombard next, now that we're officially diverse, according to the census, we're going to start re examining some of those stories in our community, making sure that if, if the focus was a, a, um, a, a majority focus, that we're looking back on it and looking for layers of other people involved. Um, we didn't just become a diverse community, we've actually been, you know, and there are situations in the history um, and we're going to start looking at that. In fact, we have a, a very well-known park in our area called Lilacia Park. It's a park of lilacs, and every May, the lilacs bloom. We're the lilac village. And in that park, there's a statue of a brown iron deer. It's actually a bronze. But um, the deer is named, and it has been named since the 1880s. The name is Rastus. And just a few years ago, we looked up what that name means. And it's actually a derogatory word for um, a person of color, and we didn't know that. And we wondered why, when we gave tours, and, and the people in the tour were people of color, we wondered why they kind of cocked their head when they look at us, when we said, and this is our mascot of the park, Rastus, and they would go, huh? <laughs> and we sort of now, we reframe that tour, and we talk about the name, and we talk about that challenging topic in the middle of a lilac tour. And the park district does not want us to do that, but we do it anyway because the history is there. And we need to start talking about those types of stories. So we're, we're, we're examining our history. We're sort of revisiting these things, and, um, and that is, is where we're at. So right now, I'm actually going to give the microphone back to Isis, and we're going to um, put some questions out to you. Uh, or if you have your own questions of the panel here, by all means, um, uh, raise your hand. Um, but th this is sort of the theme here is whose history are you getting? And these are three examples of things where hopefully you can take back to your own organizations, institutions, or communities, and you can start revisiting some of these things and asking these, um, these difficult things. Yeah. Right, and, and it is in process. Thank you for the question. He was wondering how, I have to repeat this, uh, wondering how um, the message is getting through to the public. And one of the things is through the guided tour. We, we did, we refocused all the, um, the exhibit rooms in the house. And one room is the people, the places, the movement, and that's focusing squarely on old Charlie, who never had a section in the exhibit before. Um, that combined with... Um, who we're advertising to, who we're bringing in. We actually started, um, uh, we have a board of directors, but we actually also have now a Sheldon Peck advisory board of scholars and, and people in the community who, who are stakeholders in this history. And those are the types of things we're doing. 
Um, we do a lot more promotion in various media uh, during Black History Month and things like that. We're, we're at a very basic level right now. But yes, we did reframe the exhibit um, to reflect this new uh, interpretation. Anybody else? No? Okay. Well, then I'm going to give the microphone to Isis, and she's going to start um, picking your brains. <laughs> um, so part of what I talked about um, with the Hull House, Hull House approach is to have this uh, very self-reflective model um, where you consider your blinders and your missteps and um, some of the gaps in your analysis. So these questions are in no, um, in no way meant to be accusatory. Um, they're not meant to say your site is doing something incredibly wrong or that your approach is wrong. But um, when we were talking before, this this is just kind of like um, sort of some ways in which you can get at expansion and thinking broadly. So the first question, um, if we we can talk about this together collectively, is how would your site's narrative change if staff modified some of the terminology? And so I can give an example. Um, when Jean was talking and she said she referred to people as freedom seekers as opposed to people who are enslaved or slaves. Um, I often, right. fugitives. Um, yeah. For, for uh, my particular presentation, I talked about the project and I always use the term undocumented immigrant. I never said illegal. Um, I never said alien. And when WBEZ, our local NPR station in Chicago, reported on our opening, the title of the project is Undocumented and Unafraid, and they titled it um, Illegal, Illegal Youth Something Something Art Project. <laughs> um, so I guess that's my first question is terminology and sort of a model shift. Um, does anybody have anything to say about that, about their site? Sure. Right. So did we just start saying freedom seeker without saying why? Right. No, we didn't. Okay. Because there was there was community pushback about that. Why do you have to be PC? You know, we heard that a lot from our board members and docents. We had to retrain everybody. We said, you know, we're using the term freedom seeker because it's a more appropriate term. These people stopped looking at themselves as slaves and start looking up at themselves as something different once the action took place. And so it we're using terms that sort of more empower the people in the history. And, and that's why you need to do it. And um, still, from some of our older docents, you know, runaway or fugitive or something like that will, will come out. Um, and it's not that, um, it, it, it's not that you know, we react so harshly, but we reinforce in everything that's written, freedom seeker. But there was definitely a training, a retraining, a re-education, for sure. You know, I want to take this thing off there, but okay. Um, anyone else? So why are you, I mean, what's wrong with that? Why modify? 
because I always, you know, that's, I mean, I'm just trying to understand the, the reasoning behind the modification. I know it, it, it has a better, it feels better, but was that really what it was? Um, are people freedom seekers who, who took flight from a plantation? Mm -hmm. Yes. I think it best describes them as people. Um, and we don't, we, we, um, we make sure we use the terms people, you know, um, rather than putting them in little, you know, the slave master type of thing, we say freedom seeker because that was the action they were taking. And it's not, I'm not necessarily sure it's wrong or right, but it's the way that we, and the, the way the National Park Service has tried to um, have people take a new look, a new interpretation of that history. Maybe Dina could answer that a little better. So I'm from the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. Divert. <laughs> respond to that not from just to take it out of just underground railroad history but I think one of the challenges of museums is is that we have a history of scripting the narrative whether and it can be flipping the script to a new narrative but I think more and more it has to be a dialogue because you're having people coming in with different understandings including quote-unquote the wrong understanding and how can you create a platform where you know, like if you come into our museum, you know, one might ask, was it all right to call them the projects? And it is. I mean, people from the projects call them the projects. I was working with the Oklahoma American Indian Cultural Center, and one of the first questions I had is, is it okay to say American Indian? I thought it was Native American. When I was years ago working on a Detroit African American History Museum, 
and we had, you know, African American had just come into vogue, and I was calling us black, and I mean, it's so there's these terminologies, and I think it's 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 how do you create a space where you can where we can feel comfortable to be wrong, or or not be wrong, or to say, well, this is how I understood it, and and um, I think that's what museums should be for going forward. Well, this is formal. I did, I did just want to pick up on, on what Dina was saying. Uh, at the Tracing Center, we uh, work with historic sites on interpreting slavery and African-American history, and so language comes up all the time. And the point I just wanted to add is that uh, every time we're looking at newer terms, there are pros and cons. Right? Using enslaved person rather than slave has advantages, but also has disadvantages. There'll be people who will feel very strongly about these newer terms, freedom seeker, enslaved person. There'll be people who object, who want a more historically accurate term and so forth. There'll also be difficulties. Uh, freedom seeker is a wonderful term, but, but as was pointed out at dinner last night with some of our book contributors, not every runaway slave was, in fact, seeking freedom. There were other motivations and so forth. So one thing we often advise is to vary the terminology. If you say enslaved person instead of slave at least some of the time, if you introduce freedom seeker as an alternative term, you will at least get people thinking differently, and you will send a message to people who may care one way or the other that you're at least aware of the different language and you believe in its power. This does feel formal. It's, it's so easy to fall into patterns. And I, I talk with, um, with docents when I'm training them about not sounding like flight attendants. That we just, we, we, we say the same things and we are delivering the same messages, we hope, because we have the same messages that we're trying to be delivered, delivering because that's our mission. We have key messages at our sites. That it's, we figure out a way to say those things, and then we say them again and again and again. And you know what? It sounds as if we've said them again and again and again. And they're not fresh, and they're not interesting, and they're not, they don't capture people's attention if people don't hear us saying them differently. And so I force myself to start my tours in different places, to, um, to go backwards through an exhibition, to figure out what is my favorite, favorite thing that I talk about on tours, and I am not talking about that for the next five tours that I give. What are the words that I use when I talk about this? And I'm not allowed to use those words. Or is it, I just, I think that, that when we use any word over and over again, no matter what it is, that it starts to lose its power and that it's just good interpretive practice for us to try to keep ourselves really fresh, which is not to say that I don't think that these are good words to be using, but I just think that being really thoughtful about about trying to describe people and places and events in as many different ways as we can and be sensitive and historically accurate at the same time is really good interpretive practice. Thanks for your comment. Maybe we could hit on backlash. Um, resistance backlash when opening up to different dialogues. And do you guys have anything to say about backlash? I know that I, I kind of talked about our board and our docents and things like that, you know, um, 
pretty pretty obnoxious and backlash we've we experience um, about refocusing our narrative and our interpretation Um, and you know that that is sort of it can be very difficult and it can be very um, you need to sort of dance this diplomatic dance especially when it's with um, major donors or things like that in your organization people who have long-standing and high status in your community so that can be very difficult. Would you guys like to speak on, or? All right. Anybody have? Yes. Sure. Yes. Oh, uh, I think we just have one or two left. <laughs> they, well, and the, when I came along, there was a, a, about, you know, maybe a five or six groups of docents that would sort of help us do um, the tours. And the tour was really just focused on the art. And um, now I think only one of those people is still with us. The rest, some due to, you know, they were elderly, some just sort of retired. But definitely having to relearn or, or reinterpret um, the history and focus in on things they were personally uncomfortable with caused probably an early retirement amongst some of them. Um, and what we tried to do is just be as gentle as possible. You know, we know you've lived in the community since you've been one and a half, and then you know Peck history inside and out. This is what we're finding out now. And we would bring the evidence to them, and we would have training sessions, and we would do programs in which they would learn more than they actually ever knew. I would go to places with Peck family members, do a presentation on what we were discovering about Peck, where he was all over the state, something in the New York Times that called him a radical abolitionist. He was the delegate from DuPage County for the Radical Abolition Convention. Um, that type of material came as a surprise to Peck family members who were like, wow, I guess it is true, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. So um, there, was, there was a training, there was a pushback, and in terms of the people who didn't jump on the train, you know, they're still in the community and they're still supporters for the most part. Um, they just sort of gracefully you know, backed away and decided for themselves, I can't adjust to this new bed. And you will, you'll lose people if you change your voice in your narrative, for sure. So, yes. I think we have a little bit of the opposite form of backlash, which is um, there's, uh, I mean, internally, there's definitely, you know, it's a public housing, pro-public housing museum, but the backlash is to come into existence those at, at, at in different quarters of society from policymakers who created some of the studies that led to the demise of the traditional buildings to residents in the neighboring community that are happy they're gone. And... I think it's more convincing outsiders who support in a, in a way we need to come to fruition because we're because we're applying for, you know, any city, but in Chicago particularly to build something is a political process, and you can't be oppositional only and get it done. So if we want to be a museum of the streets or just advocacy, we could you know carry our our banner of defiance, but we're actually having to. Um, 
kind of engage the opposition and, and in fact present that we're not having a scripted narrative that's only one-sided, that, that the possibility that, you know, that the acts that led to the demise of public housing are not only going to be demonized or criticized. Um, so it's a, di it's a different kind of balancing act. But that, w that once we have a facility, then we will have to have that dialogue if we're, it's not kind of a Trojan horse of, yeah, we're pretending that we're okay, but once we get a building up, we're going to be back to the barricades. So, um. Um, we're just about out of time. And the conversation probably can go on for a few more minutes with Isis and Todd. I have to catch a plane. So I'm going to be signing off. But thank you all for coming today. And um, thank you for um, this enlightening conversation. Thanks so much. Oh, you're really going. <laughs> we thought that was just. Uh... <laughs>